This podcast is brought to you by the Government Art Collection and is supported by an educational programme grant from the Paul Mellon Centre for Studies in British Art. The wind blew fair on the 23rd of March 1626 when three English adventurers set sail from Dover. Their destination? Iran. Who were they and what was the purpose of their journey? My name is Laura Popoviciu, I'm an art historian and a research curator at the Government Art Collection and over the course of four episodes I'll be looking at the cultural and diplomatic encounters between Britain and Iran. I will evoke these through works of art from the collection and through conversations with curators, academics, diplomats and architects. How did the fascination with Iran begin? What did Robert Shirley, Dodmore Cotton and Thomas Herbert, the three English adventurers, think of the Safavids as soon as they set foot on Iranian soil in the early 17th century? But first, let's find out who the Safavids were. I spoke to Dr. Suzanne Babayi, the Andrew Mellon Reader in the Arts of Iran and Islam at the Courtauld Institute of Art in London. They came to power in 1501 with a, a rather messianic, militant, in fact, agenda and, a, and an ideology. Perhaps one can say as uh, deputies on earth, on behalf of the 12 imams, that is, uh, the son-in-law and, and cousin of the prophet Muhammad, whose name was Ali, uh, Ali's sons and grandsons and his descendants, in other words, 12 imams. The claim to Shiism was not a new one, but the, the establishment of Shiism as a religion of a polity was a new proposition. It came at a time when the Ottomans had themselves established under the Sunni Caliphate and the Mughals come into play also as Sunni rulers. So the Safavids in between, so to speak, which is which is Iran not of today's borders, larger than that. It, it stretched into the Caucasus, into parts of Central Asia, into Afghanistan of today, um, Mesopotamia, Iraq of today. The Safavid dynasty lasted until 1722, but their capital was not always in the same city. It changed from Tabriz to Kazvin and finally to Esfahan. Dr. Babayi explains how this transition occurred. Shah Ismail I, who was the founder of the Safavid dynasty, was a boy king, actually, very young, but energetic and had a support of, of militant, what we call Qazilbash. These were the redheads. They, they wore a particular type of a headgear that has a red baton with a, a wrapped kind of a, a, a feature to it. Uh, they are primarily coming out of um, Turkic-speaking people of eastern Anatolia and northwestern Iran, and the support is uh, sort of stationed, if you will, around northwestern Iran. 
So Tabriz, which was the capital of the dynasty before Shah Ismail comes to power, Tabriz has a very long history of being a major city, a capital city, a major place of production of arts and culture and and science and so forth uh, since at least the uh, Mongol invasions. Uh, but as it happens, the Ottomans rise against this threat on their eastern borders, that is the Safavid threat. And so the conflicts over the territories in eastern Anatolia, northwestern Iran, the Caucasus, put Tabriz at the uh, mercy of the Ottomans. Shah Tahmas moves the capital from Tabriz to the city of Qazvin, which is more central, it's north-central Iran, not very far from Tehran of today, the capital of today, uh, where he builds uh, adjacent to the medieval city of Qazvin, a vast royal district uh, turns a a hippodrome, a, a wide open space for equestrian exercises and for mustering armies and so forth into an urban space, but not as fully developed as what we see in Esfahan, the third capital of the Safavids. It sits very uh, conveniently halfway between two waterways for trade purposes, the the Caspian Sea, which then links to the Volga River and goes up around the Ottomans. And the other one is, of course, the Persian Gulf, south, further south of Esfahan. And so this is related to trade activities, perhaps. It's very, uh, it's a beautiful site uh, with really temperate climate and plentiful water sources uh, then not anymore, as it turns out, and agricultural lands all around. And it was indeed a capital city in the time of the Seljuks in the 12th century. So it has a history of of significant presence in history of Iran in general. Uh, So the three moves are really politically, economically, uh, and militarily driven more than... uh, more than being signals of a peripatetic lifestyle. And it's exactly the same thing as the Ottomans did. They moved from Bursa to Edirne to Istanbul. uh, And the Mughals maintained three uh, concurrent capitals. In other words, theirs was a different attitude in terms of uh, Agra, Delhi, and Lahore. So the presence of the emperor in these capital cities meant that he has, he exercises control. We've all experienced the excitement of discovering a new city. But how do we walk around a city? Perhaps you always follow your itinerary using a map as your guide. Perhaps you interact with the locals and ask for directions when you've wandered off the well-trodden path. Or, if you're like me, You let yourself be carried away by meandering streets, seduced by fragrances and intricate facades. But what about the cities of the past? How do we unearth these? Well, we can imagine them or reconstruct them meticulously. Dr. Susan Babai has transformed the way in which we understand early modern Esfahan and its inhabitants, from the dandies and the young beautiful women to the old wandering Sufis, into a dynamic and experiential approach. I teach actually an MA special option course, 
which is called Strolling Esfahan. And it's meant to think of, of the city not as a static thing, but as one that is experienced. What do you see when you come out of the cavernous bazaar alleyways and suddenly you have this massive, amazing open maidan public square in front of you? What do you see? How do you see them? What do you feel, really? Let me lead you into the Maidan. Thomas Herbert entices us. We pass over a well-built arched bridge supported by 35 pillars through which the Zayanderud from the mountains streams gently. The Maidan is without doubt as spacious, as pleasant and aromatic a market as any in the universe. It is a thousand paces from north to south and from east to west above 200, resembling our exchange or the Place Royale in Paris, but six times larger. This is what Isfahan looked like in the 17th century. So who are the people that occupy this city? The patron of Esfahan is Shah Abbas I, who's Shah Abbas the Great for good reasons, actually, who lived 1571 to 1629. And it is really those last three decades of his life that are very closely intertwined with this building and transfer of the capital to Esfahan. There are various groups of Armenians who are displaced, and the displacement comes as a result of Ottoman-Safavid conflicts in the Caucasus. And they become the sole agents on behalf of the Shah for the trade of silk with Europe in particular, which then means gold and silver that European empires have now taken out of the New World, the Americas. There's another new group, which are the Tabrizi uh, merchants who were in Tabriz or around Tabriz in northwest Iran, in Azerbaijan, who are also moved to Esfahan. It's forcible, then encouraged and supported. Uh, but what that means is you have new quarters, essentially. There is a Tabrizi quarter. There is new Jolfa. There are new elite, these what we call the Qolam elite. It's a... It's these are Georgians, Armenians, Circassians who have entered the service of the Safavid court at very young age. Uh, they are basically like the janissaries of the Ottomans, rounded up and taken, and then trained, and and uh, they convert to Islam. They become the administrators, and of course there is the old Esfahan, and all those people are beginning to sort of. Uh, merge into this new structure. It's really vibrant. It's really this cosmopolitan uh, mix of people. They really are alert to the worldliness of their own um, city. But they're also linked up with a larger world that includes Turks and Uzbeks and Indians and Chinese and Siamese and Russians, the Arabs and so forth, than any European. Europe is still very much on the sort of backwaters of their thinking. It's emerging. European entry into this uh, picture is really concurrent with the European uh, age of exploration. There is a circulation of people as of late 15th century 
into the 16th century. You have, for instance, adventurous merchants and, and curious travelers, two ambassadors and ambassadorial groups. A portrait in the government art collection shows a 36-year-old gentleman with fine features, intense blue eyes, long wavy hair and a light moustache. He wears a black Arcadian vest with jeweled clasps and a lace collar. This is Thomas Herbert, gentleman to the bedchamber of Charles I. The painting was made 16 years after he accompanied the embassy of Sir Dodmer Cotton to the court of Shah Abbas in 1626 to negotiate the opening of the silk trade. Imagine what an exciting prospect this was for young Herbert, aged only 20 years old. What an adventure to discover Persepolis, Shiraz, Isfahan and Kazvin. His travelling companion, Robert Shirley, also features in the collection in an engraving after a painting by Sir Anthony van Dyck. Together with his brother, Robert advised the Shah on how to modernise the army. As a reward, he was sent on diplomatic missions to England, Spain and Italy. Van Dyck found him in Rome in 1622, posing in his spectacular Persian ceremonial robe. A heavy turban and a cloth of gold cape with oriental figures and flowers, nonchalantly placed over a rich gold and silver tunic. But Herbert and Shirley are not the only category of travellers to Esfahan, as Dr. Suzanne Babai tells us. There are artists and, and uh, people who are searching for uh, more lucrative opportunities. There are missionaries. These are very important at this point. And, of course, there are trade communities like the Dutch East India Company, and then the English East India Company, later French East India Company. So there are, you know, all kinds of ways of thinking about contact. Trade, in the end, is the most important one. There is a lot to be said about prints and, and textiles and paintings and even uh, materials such as pigments, raw silk, but also woven silk and silk textiles, uh, carpets. And they go not just to Europe, it's also Asia is very important. We rarely think about the fact that the trade with India was so important. And there are Safavid ceramic shards that are found in Dejima in Japan, which the Dutch have been transporting these along the way. In this period, Iran was at the heart of interactions between cultures. To find out more what led to these encounters and their manifestations, I spoke to Dr. Jan Loop, senior lecturer in early modern history at the University of Kent. In the early modern period, we obviously have a process of globalization that leads to uh, an, an intensified encounters between different religions and different cultures, not just with Islam, but also with uh, the new world and an awareness of diversity, an awareness that there are other options and there are obviously reasonable people that by choice and by free choice would follow Islam and found Islam very appealing. So things that have been very foreign 
that have been new at one point became more kind of familiar, right? So by developing new trade relations, say with the Safavid Persian Empire or within the, in India, all over the Ottoman world, there is a certain infrastructure that comes with it, like some diplomatic facilities, which allow people to stay for a longer time to get more familiar with it. And, and, and there are more people traveling back and forth, talking about it, writing about it. What do these travel accounts tell us? Dr. Suzanne Babayi. Engelbert Kempfer, who was a German doctor, accompanied the Swedish embassy in the 1684-5 to Esfahan and wrote one of the most interesting descriptions of Esfahan. He wrote the first really major description of Japan as well. So, you know, a, a, a view that comes from a very scientifically minded person. And he commissioned a Persian artist, for instance, to do paintings for his album uh, with various types of people and, you know, activities and a record. It's like photography of its own time. The French jeweler and merchant Jean Chardin, who also in a way served as a as a spy, if you will, for Colbert, wrote massively about Esfahan. He lived there for long periods of time and proudly announced in his travel account that he knew Esfahan better than Paris and that Persian became second nature to him. Yet others, like Thomas Herbert, the Englishman, whose travels into the Mazandaran region, the Caspian seashore region in particular, are so vivid as he follows the the movements of the Shah and and uh, goes to the palace in Mozandaran and describes it and describes what happened there. We were conducted by some sultans through a spacious garden, which was curious to the eye and delicate to the smell, once we were brought into another summer house. From the terrace thereof, we had a delightful horizon into the Caspian Sea towards the north, and southward, at a great distance, we could discern the high mountain Taurus. The chambers were large and square, the roof arched and gilded. The ground was spread with carpets of silk and gold. They also talk about practices, habits, how people stroll. For instance, there is this beautiful boulevard known as Chaharbaq, it's like a boulevard in Paris, except that what we see in Paris comes much later. People walk around, stroll under the trees. There are cafes you can stop by. There is a water channel that runs through it. It's a long one that goes um, over the bridge. You can sit there and take the breezes or just look out or look at people. They also use terminology and comparisons that make it possible for their readers to imagine these. As is really quite charmingly put, is, for instance, to think that Esfahan is round like Paris is round, uh, which Herbert talks about. And also, to Herbert says that Nujolfa, the Armenian quarter south of the river, Zoyanderud River, uh, is located in the same sort as Southwark is to London. And having lived in Southwark, I can see his point, actually. Uh, and that, that sort of 
description allows for the readers to imagine these places in ways that, you know, maybe even um, engravings don't sufficiently do, or they complement them, actually, I think. These enlightening accounts prompted a new desire to explore this part of the world even further. Dr. Jan Loop tells us about the introduction of Persian studies in England. In the 17th century and in the 18th century, we already have quite a few scholars like uh, John Greaves or Thomas Hyde who are interested in certain aspects of, of Persian history. John Greaves, for example, was an astronomer, so he was primarily interested in astronomical texts and translated a number of texts that are in this field. Thomas Hyde was very interested in Zoroastrianism, so he writes a book about the, the religious history of the old Persians and wants to show that the Zoroastrians are actually a form of crypto-Christian and wants to show that their that their fire and sun worship is nothing else than than pure monotheism. Persian studies really become important at European universities in the late 18th and in the 19th century. So it's more kind of in this romantic context. And and after the discovery of this Indo-European language families, that Persian studies seem to even replace uh, kind of the study of Arabic and, and so the obsession with Near Eastern Persian mythology, for example, or language starts to come through. It really kicks in with the work of people like William Jones, who, who start to move Oriental studies out of every theological context and start to kind of treat Arabic, but also Persian uh, language as an object of studies worth of its own. The first publication that he did at all was the biography of Nadir Shah of the mid-18th century um, kind of uh, Persian ruler who consolidated power and was admired by Europeans and often called the Persian Napoleon. And the first information we get about Nadir Shah actually was an account that we get from Jesuit missionaries who were at the court in Esfahan and particularly Polish missionaries. Um, and there was a the Jesuit called Krasinski who was uh, writing reports about the revolution at the Persian court and the ascent to power of Nadir Shah. And one can also see how the interest shifted from kind of a religious interest in Zoroastrianism to more political developments to strong authoritarian political players, um, which is very typical of the late 18th century period. So far, the architecture of Esfahan revealed itself from the outside, but its charm draws you in and it would be impossible to part without entering one of its buildings. I have chosen the best preserved and largest of them, the Chehel Sotun Palace, or the Forty Column Palace, as its name tells us. It has a large, open, wooden pillared space in front of it. It looks out to the garden and onto the pool and has an audience hall behind it. You won't find a palace on a similar scale anywhere else in the world. Not even the Topkapi Palace in Istanbul equals it. In her book, Esfahan and its Palaces, Dr. Sasan Babai talks about the architecture of conviviality and views the palace as a place for magnanimity. I asked her to describe the way in which a Safavid architectural structure facilitates the organization of a sumptuous banquet. The Shah is the host. He sits at the apex of this space of the pillared hall and uh, the entire seating arrangement 
his, has a protocol, has a codified approach. And the closer to the Shah, the more important you are. And the Shah actually hosts and eats and drinks with all the guests, and there is entertainment, there are dancers and music. This is unique uh, in this period, in the sense that the Ottoman Sultan is never seen um, only twice or three times a year, and in his seclusion, nobody can speak a word. He would shoot the birds out of the sky over Topkapı to maintain a particular uh, decorum. That's a different performance of kingship. In the French court, Louis XIV eats while the courtiers watch, and then they eat after he has finished and left. These are just, you know, ceremonial processes that speak to the relationships, to the uh, reciprocities, and, and how questions of authority are, are articulated through these cultural practices. So to have a big feast where you would have three, four hundred people all sitting in the company of the Shah, and course after course of meals come. These are hours of eating. Having indulged himself in such a delightful feast, Thomas Herbert vividly recounted. The banquet was very costly and plentiful of candied dried meats, dates preserved, preserved pears, pistachios, almonds, durians, quinces and apricots, and a hundred other fruits and spices. There must be a purpose to this well-orchestrated display of splendor. I came to the conclusion that these palaces were constructed, were designed and constructed with the specific idea of conviviality and feasting as an expression of the rule of the Safavid Shah. This idea of the Shah acting on behalf of the absent imam and being magnanimous, sharing, uh, openness, um, hospitality, all of these are now articulated in terms of a religious obligation, actually. The obligation of the Safavi Shah to be present, to be hospitable, to hold feasts. It's, it has a political dimension to it. It's not just because they loved partying. Like all dynasties, the Safavids eventually came to an end in the 18th century when the last ruler, Shah Sultan Hussein, was defeated violently by the Afghans. But this period remains deeply ingrained in Iranian history as a celebration of Esfahan. Esfahan remains to this day the city par excellence of that kind of a glory of the past. And, and remains very much at the forefront of thinking of Iranians. It still has enormous charm and charisma for really what is the footprint of Safavids there. All of them, not just, and I mean not just a dynasty, I mean all these architects and artists and calligraphers and planners and thinkers and philosophers and poets and cooks and you know all of them are part of part of this building of Esfahan. 
Join me next time for a walk through 19th century Tehran in the company of Sir Gore Usli, the first permanent British ambassador to the Qajar court, and hear about a splendid portrait of Fatali Shah. There's a whisper about his exceptionally long beard and wasp-like waist.